The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Ah, happy Monday, everybody. You're watching Scorebox with uh, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Chinese markets kicking off the year of the tiger with a roar after Wall Street bounces back and the S&P posts its best week of the year. U.S. yields spike with the 10-year touching its highest level since December 2019. This after the headline January jobs report number comes in way stronger than expected. Good morning, everybody. The U.S. says Russia has 70 percent of the troops and weaponry needed for a full scale invasion of Ukraine, while the German chancellor defends his country's contribution to NATO ahead of his meeting with U.S. President Biden. Within the European Union, we're the country with the highest defense contribution. Nobody should overlook that. And Peloton shares surge more than 20% on reports that Amazon and Nike are among potential suitors for the troubled fitness giant. Well, it's back to business for the Chinese markets, and they have been trading higher today following the week-long Lunar New Year holiday. Despite weaker PMI data, the Chinese services sector grew at its slowest pace in five months in the month of January as local COVID restrictions hit consumer sentiment. Sam rejoins us for a look at the market performance and the data. Good morning, Sam. Good morning to you, Jeff. That's right. The mainland market certainly playing catch-ups after that week-long break for the Lunar New Year holiday. And so far, so good, you could say, for the year of the tiger, despite, as you say, that uh, disappointing PMI data that we did get this morning on the services side of things. We have seen the mainland markets really outperforming in the Asia-Pacific region this morning. Some of that can really be put down to some of the commentary that we have been getting from the very powerful state planner. But we've also had state media at the same time uh, really trying to shore up sentiment on the first day of trade for the Lunar New Year. Uh, We have seen the state planners saying that more efforts will be made to expand domestic demand, including speeding up uh, some of these infrastructure projects. We've also seen uh, state media, as I say, coming out saying that market liquidity will remain reasonably ample. The central bank uh, will maintain sufficient liquidity. And that comes after, of course, we did see the PBOC ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday, making these big cash injections into the banking system as we do typically see that demand uh, ahead of the Spring Festival. And so that is perhaps a bit of welcome commentary coming from the policymakers today for the first day of trade, as we did see more evidence of this uh, slowing economic growth, by the way, of that Taishin Services PMI for the month of January, that uh, activity slowing at the fastest pace in five months, dropping to 51.4. So still above that line that separates expansion from contraction. But the slowest pace we've seen since 
August. And as you say, that was largely down to these very strict measures that we have seen as a result of these outbreaks of COVID to try to curb the spread of that. So further evidence now of this weak consumption picture that we continue to see that is really being hit by this lockdown heavy zero COVID approach that the government is taking. And so in terms of the breakdown here, if we look under the hood, that new business actually slowed as domestic demand, as I say, took a hit from those COVID curbs. But it was a similar picture when it came to overseas demand as well, because we saw those export orders actually falling into contraction for the first time uh, in four months and the fastest pace since October 2020. Inflationary pressures also continued. We saw those input prices uh, continuing to rise in the month of January. Uh, We also saw those prices that companies charge that they actually pass on to the Chinese consumer, jumping to a three-month high as well. And that all weighed on the employment picture. So we saw jobs falling for the first time since August last year as well, which is a bit of a worrying trend. Of course, we do know that this particular survey looks at the smaller and private firms uh, over in China, which have been harder hit by the pandemic. They're also more sensitive, more vulnerable to these sorts of lockdowns and also social distancing measures than the bigger and state-owned firms. Of course, it's not good for things like bars and restaurants, but it was largely consistent with the official numbers as well, which also did show a slowdown in activity there too. Now, the economists quoted in this survey uh, did say that business uh, sentiment was less optimistic uh, in January. Service providers uh, are under greater cost pressures, as I just uh, spelled out, and uh, do remain concerned uh, about the COVID situation. I mean, we just saw today uh, China announcing a lockdown of a city uh, on the border of Vietnam of some 3 million residents. So this uh, trend, you could say, when it comes to consumption and services activity uh, will likely continue uh, in the month of February. China uh, has been slashing a number of rates. It's also, as I say, been pumping this large amount of uh, cash into the banking system. But this weaker PMI reading that we have seen in the official numbers and the private survey is likely to fuel more expectations in the market, Jeff, uh, that we could see more easing to certainly shore up growth to come. Terrific, Sam. Thank you so much for the update. Let's move on and let's talk about that bewildering report on Friday, the US non-farm payrolls number that seems to have a few people confused. And I'll, I'll put my hand up on that one as well. America's employers added 467,000 jobs in January. That was more than double expectations. The unemployment rate ticked up to 4%. Hourly wages also jumped. There were also some substantial upward revisions to prior months, further reinforcing Fed Chair Jerome Powell's description last week as the uh, labour market as being strong, of course. President Joe Biden called America's jobs picture, quote, stronger than ever, while also acknowledging that more work needs to be done to combat soaring inflation. Average people are getting clobbered by the cost of everything Gas prices of the pump are up. We're working to bring them down, but they're up. Food prices are up. We're working to bring them down as well. We're going to work to bring down the prices that are way up, but guess what? Guess what? We're going to keep strengthening the supply chain to bring down the cost of every all these goods. But in the meantime, there's a lot we can do to give families a little extra breathing room. The chair of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisers, Cecilia Rouse, also reiterated that optimism about the inflation outlook. 
what does this look for? You know, the, the inflation outlook is because we've had such strong growth and our supply chain challenges remain. Uh, we are working through them. I think if you talk to retailers and manufacturers, they are they are anticipating that that eases over the course of this year. And forecasters expect inflation to ease o- over the coming months. Uh, the U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, also hailed the higher jobs number and said he's confident the administration has the tools to get things back to normal. There's lots of talk about what's happening in the economy, uh, talking about recessions. I mean, I don't think this is necessarily deemed a recession, but we're dealing with a pandemic unlike anything we've ever had. Uh, you know, I think hopefully as we continue to move through 2022, we continue to follow President Biden's plan as far as dealing with the pandemic, dealing with inflation, dealing with the cost, dealing with the supply chain, all these challenges that the president ha- ha- has been ta- ta- tackling head on, uh, we will hopefully start to see some of this uh, normalcy settle back into our economy. Does anyone believe a word that politicians say to get the tools to get things back to normal? Is that like the tools of releasing SPR when the oil price was $82 a barrel and now we're $93 plus a barrel? Is that the kind of tool we're talking about there? Or get the supply chain back to normal by resourcing stuff? Have you seen the record trade deficit figures? There's a lot of people with egg on their face out there, not just in Washington. How about Wall Street as well? Um, Jeff's saying about confusion. I think if I was employed to make these kind of numbers uh, and make, the, and make uh, consciously smart things said about these, like, I'd be sacked by now if I'd said we'd have a negative 400,000 jobs print. And actually what we got was a 467 figure with 709,000 jobs upward revision from the previous two months as well. I've told you, ladies and gentlemen, time and time again, that first print is an absolutely random number. And the fact that that people think they can actually say what they think it's going to be is chaos. It's crazy. I don't know why smart economists bother trying to make a prediction on the headline figure. You're better off looking at the participation rate. You're better off looking at the average hourly earnings. You're better off looking at the average hours worked as well, because there are so many other things in there that make sense on a month-by-month basis. You can build up a piece of data. As far as the headline piece of data is concerned, and I'll keep saying it to you, I've said it for decades, I'll say it again as well, it is a random snapshot. Do not hang your hat on it. The markets themselves, well look, the Dow was flat on the session. The S&P 500 putting on five tenths. The Nasdaq 1.6% higher. Roaring back some of these technology stocks. Should we have a look at some of them? Absolutely roaring ahead. I mean, look at them, all of them across the board, apart from Meta. Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear. Amazon, and, and there was a great piece I read over the weekend. I think it was the Financial Times, was saying, do not let this mess that's going on here over at Meta distract you from the fact that a lot of the technology companies are doing really, really well at the moment. I mean, that's just crazy. That shows, I mean, 58% higher for Snap. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, that just shows me there is a real stunning lack of liquidity and two-way good business. If any stock can rally 59% in one earnings release as well, that tells you a lot about liquidity and the lack of depth and breadth on that stock as well. Pinterest was up uh, 11.2% and Amazon, well, that's up 13%, but my goodness me, the numbers. I mean, across the board, what do you want to do with Amazon? I mean, everything from the Rivian stake to the AWS to obviously the basic bread and butter business as well. Things are going pretty well over there. And, and, and they put in a 17% price rise again. Again, Mr. Biden, administration, a thing is going to come back down to normal. With that, they're not going to take that one back. That's a 17% price rise for 147 million American fo- homes. 
That's real inflation for all you economists out there who say, just transient, just transient. Uh, should we have a look at Peloton? Peloton is in such a mess <laughs> that, that when the suitors come for this one as well, it rallies 26%. I mean, seriously, you look at the numbers pre when people didn't think there was a bid out there. And now we understand that one of the big sportswear companies, possibly even Amazon as well, having a sniff on this one as well. Absolutely fascinating what's going on at Peloton as well. Did you want to look at the treasuries? Uh, when I was writing this morning, my, my copy up, it was like the highest uh, level we've seen since January 2020 in the Treasuries. Well, now um, my, my copy is telling me uh, December 2019 is the recent high. But again, it's just come off its highs. It had a 1.9 handle as well. It's hard when you see the kind of jobs figures and the kind of inflation. Oh, by the way, the average hourly earnings were up 5.7%. I don't know if Jeff mentioned that earlier. It's hard to see how these yields go anywhere other than north at the moment. Now, we know about the flattening at the long end as well, and the real actions at the two-year with a 1.3% yield as well, but very hard to see how that turns around unless we get a dramatic slowing of the U.S. economy. Asian indices, I mentioned in the headlines about the Chinese markets coming back. Look at that. Shanghai Composites, 2% to the upside. The rest of them have been absorbing the moves we saw elsewhere. So the Nikkei's down, just came back a bit of ground, 0.71% lower. Hang Seng down 0.26. Opening calls in Europe, uh, higher across the board, and the US futures. Actually, I haven't seen the US futures, so let's have a little look at where they are currently trading. The US futures, a little bit flat for the S&P, bit of a negative move on the Dow, and the Nasdaq up 19 points. Right, let's get to Jeff Henriksen, who is the CEO uh, and founder at Thorpe Abbott's Capital. And Jeff, before we get to your excellent trading pair of Crypto Punk and Whirlpool, which I think is a great combo. I love that piece of research, by the way. This payroll figure, there's way too many smart people on Wall Street getting hung up on that first print, isn't there really? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said there. I, I, I think the big thing to me was the, the improvement in the labor participation. I think that is something I've been focused on you know, every month because it's so important to see uh, you know, signs that the, uh, what are we calling it? The great resignation maybe is moderating, but, uh, you know, generally speaking, I, the economy is, is robust. I mean, a lot of people might not feel it every day because you go out and things don't seem normal. Um, I mean, I went out to dinner tonight and I, you know, ate outside of guacamole cost me $13. That doesn't feel normal. And a lot of people don't feel like the economy seems normal to them, but, um, but, but job growth is robust. I think we're seeing an improvement in, uh, labor force participation. That's very, uh, bullish, I think, long term. And, uh, uh, you know, despite all the problems we're seeing, I think it's it's still a robust economy. And I, I, I think equities still uh, are the most promising uh, house in town to, uh, to be looking at. I'm with you. Your guacamole sounds expensive. There's a pub, there's a pub locally to me that's, that's selling fish pie at $36. I mean, look, fish pie is just a bit of potato. Wow. And a, oh, it's too much. Uh, and that's not even flash London like uh, my other Jeff lives, uh, goes to restaurants in and Karen does. Uh, Jeff, what about the uh, these valuation dichotomies? I love the word dichotomy and I love what you're doing with the crypto punk whirlpool analogy there. Just tell our viewers about it. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the uh, things, I mean, investors, I think, have a tendency in environments like this to really focus on the headline narrative, the headline factors that are driving um, that narrative. So in this case, it's inflation, it's COVID, it's supply chain, it's you know central bank tightening. But one of the things we've been focusing on are kind of the second order effects, I think, that a lot of people miss. And the second order effects are investor reactions to this. And I think, and, and, and investor reactions to other investors. And what we've seen is just a huge uh, uh, dichotomy and, and, and uh, divergence in valuations of, of different parts of the market. And as an example, I gave in our shareholder letter, I said, if you look at some of these 
uh, crypto punk NFTs that are going for millions of dollars on the one hand, which to me makes no sense. And then on the other hand, you look at a company like Whirlpool, which is not a very, uh, it's not a high growth business, um, not super cool like some things, but it's growing mid single digits uh, revenue, you know, uh, mid teens return on invested capital, very robust free cash flow generation, huge buyback in place. Um, last earnings report, uh, you know, all signs are pointing that they're being able to push push cost pressures through, and yet it can't fetch seven, it can't fetch eight times earnings, uh, normalized earnings. And so when we see valuation discrepancies like that, you know, we, we're like, okay, this market, you know, the headline valuations might seem high, and it might seem like there are all these problems, but when I look underneath the hood, we're finding discrepancies, and we want to be long you know, ideas like that, where we think uh, there's a, a major mispricing. And so that's been the focus of our efforts uh, in this environment to try to find that, those kind of ideas. Jeff, Jeff, but is, is there clear evidence at this stage that in a market that seems to have trended lower since the beginning of the year, value stocks can definitely outperform growth stocks? I mean, we just seem to have seen everything come down at the same pace. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that has been what we've seen. Um, you know, I think. Oh, well, I mean, I wouldn't say everything, right? I mean, I think if you look at some of the the really high fly flying growth stocks, right? I mean, I, I look at Kathy Wood's uh, arc, right? I think it's down quite a bit more than the market year to date, and more than than value stocks are. Um, and I'm not even saying that it has to be a value stock per se. I use Whirlpool because it was a pretty easy example. But I think, but, but Amazon's a great example, right? I mean, that's a company. Full disclosure, we've been long for a long time because we believe that you know the 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 valuation there is still misunderstood by a, a large part of the market and there's a huge discrepancy and you guys pointed it out between the prospects for Amazon and which is being driven by you know, AWS which is this wonderful business and their ability to to pass costs through with raising prime and what's going on at Meta and so um, you know, just within growth, I think there are discrepancies. And so what I, what I, when I hear investors talk, all they talk about is everything that we hear uh, in, in the financial media as well, which is inflation and all these problems. And, and we need to think about those things. But I think uh, it really, I've been saying this for a long time, but if you, you want to own equities, but you want to own the right equities, you know, you want to do your homework and you want to find situations that are not being fully appreciated where, um, you know, even in a company that, that maybe is going to have some cost pressures in the next few years, uh, long-term valuation is not really driven by cash flows being generated in the next year or two. It's it's what's what's going to come in the next thirty years. And so, when you see something being discounted so heavily, like the world is ending for them, and and you do a rational analysis and say, you know what, it's not. Uh, I, I think those are the type of opportunities you want to find. And it might take a while for some of these ideas to play out, but I think ultimately they do play out if you are in the right situations um, that are mispriced relative to their prospects. I think you're saying something very important about how when the nature of markets change, when the interest rate and inflation environment changes, you need to rethink your investment approach. Could you talk just a little bit more then about perhaps some other stocks that you feel are attractive at the moment and how our investing audience ought to be rethinking the investment strategies that they're uh, applying this year? Because perhaps some of those that they used last year, like just buying on the dips every time it went down won't work as well. Well, so I think, you know, there are a lot of opportunities where we look at something and we say, man, there's a lot of value here, but but I'm not quite positive on how long it's going to take the market to come around and agree with us. So we're looking for ideas where there are catalysts. And, and an obvious catalyst is a company that has shown a uh, um, uh, a willingness to buy back stock when, when their stock is undervalued, because you don't want 
companies buying back stock when it's overvalued, you want them, um, you know, to, to when it's undervalued to really be putting that capital to work. And so I'll give you another idea. Uh, I'm not sure in the UK if you guys are familiar with Jack in the Box, but it's a, a burger chain here in the United States. Very, very good food. Um, you know, in the last eight years, they have retired over 50% of their float. Um, and at a time when, and, and you're looking at it now and they're still buying back stock. And this is a company that uh, very similar uh, situation to Whirlpool, although I think their growth prospects are better. Mid, you know, mid, you know, high double digit, you know, kind of, uh, you know, mid, high teen double digit return on invested capital, um, you know, almost getting a 10% free cash flow yield. And they're just buying back stock. And at a certain point, markets will reflect that. I mean, I'll give you a great example. Dillard's, uh, for the longest time, was a retailer in the United States. You know, this stock was trading as if it was left for dead. And all they kept doing was just buy back stock, buy back stock, buy back stock. And then one day the market woke up and realized, you know, there are no shares left. And the stock was up several hundred percent last year. So I think you want to find these ideas where you have some kind of catalyst. And that catalyst could be management saying, you know what, Mr. Market, if you think that we're uh, if you don't agree with our valuation and we don't agree with how you're valuing us, we're going to go back and buy back all the stock. And so that's one idea. Just mentioning Jack in the Box um, is, is a company that is just shown a proclivity to buy back stock when their when their shares are undervalued, and that's the type of situation that I think will do well in a, in a market like this. Um, Jeff, um, I've just finished well perusing for a book called um, it's Sebastian Malaby's The Power Law, and it's talking about venture capital, and it's talking about the 80-20 principle. And I don't think our viewers realise that actually of the, you know, let's say, 10 companies that VC gets involved in, they only really expect two of them uh, to make it, and they hope they make it really big as well. Trouble is, a lot of these kind of companies are on the market now. There should be a real caveat out there as well. And you mentioned Kathy Woods, and I think that's a great warning to everyone. That actually, eight out of these 10 of these companies, they're really not going to make it anyway, are they? And they're just um, people flying a kite on them as well. Our viewers need to know that a lot of these companies, the, the, the backers don't really think they're going to make it, do they? Well, I mean, I, I think it, it obviously depends on the situation. But I think one mistake investors make is they are constantly trying to find the next Amazon or the next uh, Google or the next, you know, big growth company. And I think people fail to realize how rare it is to have, you know, success like that. And so, um, you know, I think a common mistake investors make is they say, well, look, this seems, I mean, you, know, you mentioned Peloton, right? I mean, investors very bullish on that because it seems like it maybe has some of the characteristics of, of other high growth businesses, but Oftentimes they just don't materialize. Now I'm not going to, you know, and Peloton is uh, going through some trouble right now, but um, I'm not going to comment on the business one way or the other. But I just think that when investors go looking for the next hot growth stock, you know, I want to find Amazon, uh, you know, but I want to find a version of Amazon like it would look 20 years ago. Um, you know, you, the base rate probability of getting one of picking one of those is actually very very low, uh, and so I think you have to be very careful about trying to find the next hot thing. Um, you know, I think Warren Buffett says, I like to jump two foot hurdles. Well, when I can find a company at a 10% free cash flow yield with you know, mid-teens return on invested capital that's buying all its stock back, you know, I, I don't have to make any kind of crazy prediction uh, on that business. Whereas with a lot of these growth names, you have to get a lot of things right. And, and oftentimes that's very difficult to do. But if you anchor on, oh, this is going to be the next Amazon, or this is going to be the next Google, you know, I think you can get into trouble if, if you're not careful. And you bring up a great point. VC um, doesn't expect all, you know, even the majority majority of their businesses to do well. They expect, you know, probably, uh, you know, a lot of them to, to go to zero, some to kind of break even and a few home runs to really make the returns. And in, in, unless you're equipped to be a, a venture capitalist, I think you have to be careful trying to to fish in very, uh, 
you know, high growth, expensive waters. I love to talk to you, Jeff, as well. Uh, but you've also introduced me to something quite terrible. Have you seen this thing called the Bigger Jack then? You were mentioning that restaurant. Have you had the Bigger oh. Jack? Have you eaten the Bigger Jack? You mean the Bigger Jack, the, the, the burger? Yeah. I, no, I've not, I, actually. I, 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 I Have you? It's, it, it, it sounds amazing. I, I, I went a, to Jack of Box as a kid growing it's, up. It's, the, it's a thousand the calories, Jeff. I the ultimate cheeseburger. That's Jeff, a great it's a one. thousand calories. That's my worry. Oh, well, yeah, okay, so you might want to get a Peloton to the workout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a trading pair, but in your whirlpool uh, um, cryptos. Right. Anyway, lovely to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Really good conversation to kick off the show. Thank you for having uh, me, Jeff Henrikson, thank you, sir. CEO and founder of Thorpe Abbott's Capital. This bigger jack thing has got 70 grams of fat in it. Oh, my goodness me. A lot of protein, though. I guess 45 grams. Anyway, anyway, that's the uh, health segment. Uh, coming up on the show, the world's most valuable oil company reportedly eyeing a listing right here in London. That'll be interesting. We'll have the details uh, when Squawkbox returned and the podcast. Oof, Jeff. Yeah, well, if you want to find out about some more interesting uh, trading pairs in the NFT white goods area, Make a point of tuning in to the Squawkbox podcast available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We'll be back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career. Have lots of careers. Try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. So Saudi Aramco is reportedly planning to list additional shares worth as much as $50 billion or around 2.5% of the company. The Wall Street Journal reports that bosses at the world's most valuable oil company are believed to be considering selling more shares in Riyadh as well as a potential secondary listing overseas. Aramco first went public uh, eventually in late 2019, offering shares at 32 real, meaning it's up around 15% since then. Dan joins us with more. Dan, why does the kingdom want to or even need to sell shares at this moment? There's two schools of thought. One, higher oil price, take advantage of it. Two, the kingdom must be making so much money from the higher oil price. Why do they need the listing? Yeah, correct. Look, Steve, it all comes back to Vision 2030 and Saudi Arabia's overall goal to transform its economy and transform its society. In terms of this story, look, we reached out to Aramco across the weekend to get a comment and a response to this. Of course, first reported by the Wall Street Journal. Aramco has officially declined to comment, but we've also been hitting the phones and sources inside the company have thrown some cold water on this. They say there's nothing really cooking at the moment, but watch this space. I've also just spoken with Sadad Al-Husseini this morning. He's a former board member and a senior vice president of upstream operations at Aramco. Of course, someone who is very experienced, but also very familiar with the Aramco mind meld. He said he hasn't heard anything officially either, but in his view, now would be a good time if Aramco were to go ahead with an offer like this, given the recovery and the fundamentals that we see in the oil market today. Listen in. There is a strong demand for energy. The global recovery is taking a hold. 
there is a shortage of uh, supply in many areas of the world. So the markets are doing uh, very well just because this is the nature of the global economy. It's growing at a fast rate. It's recovering very quickly. The Far East, by the way, far more uh, aggressively than uh, Europe or the U.S. So, uh, and there is a strong interest in a reliable, secure, affordable source of energy across the world. Oil is it. Uh, yes, gas is great too. It's very clean. Uh, alternatives, yes, they will come along in, the, in due course. But right now, immediate requirement for energy, the best source is oil. And uh, it doesn't need pipelines. It doesn't need LNG terminals. So that's one take. And of course, this all comes after reports surfaced over the weekend that Saudi Arabia was restarting talks on an Aramco share sale. The plan, at least reported by the Wall Street Journal, was to sell as much as $50 billion or about 2.5% of the company. And that report also said that executives were discussing selling more shares on the Saudi Tadawal, that's the domestic market in Saudi Arabia, as well as a secondary listing in London or in Singapore. And you'll remember, as far back as 2019, we were talking about this potential secondary listing. That was after Aramco raised $29.4 billion, listing $1.5 percent of its shares on the domestic market. There are a number of obstacles to getting that secondary listing, but we know that it is something that the company has been talking about and something that they have been looking towards doing. Of course, when you look at the fundamentals right now as well, higher oil prices are certainly a factor that could support a new listing. But at the same time, any new share sale could be quite challenging, right? There's no question that Aramco is an investable business as proven by the 2019 IPO. But big oil is becoming an increasingly hard sell to institutional investors who are becoming more focused on ESG credentials. So interesting to see what happens next here. But Steve, as I pointed out, Saudi Arabia is a country looking to accelerate its economic transformation. Aramco is a really vital tool in the arsenal of making Vision 2030 a reality. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens next here. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.